You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. A content warning before today's episode. It is positively murderific. Murder most foul from start to finish, with a number of innocent victims involved. I don't go into the gory details, but if this isn't to your taste, perhaps listen to one of our older episodes instead. In 2012, a man in Atlanta shot the husband of a co-worker he was allegedly having an affair with. Rusty Snyderman had just dropped his two-year-old son off at the Dunwoody daycare when he was murdered by Hemi Newman. Newman's lawyers brought a strange defense before the bench. Newman believed he had been visited by an angel and a demon, who told him that Snyderman's children were actually his, and he needed to protect them by killing Snyderman. The angel and demon appeared in the forms of Olivia Newton-John and Barry White, respectively. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. A surprising number of people have actually gone to court over the years claiming they were not responsible for their actions because they were possessed by demons or under the command of the devil, a sort of metaphysical Nuremberg defense. One of the most famous examples was David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, who claimed that the devil ordered him to kill through a demon who was possessing his neighbor's dog. But he's far from the only example. Recently, a man in Norfolk, Virginia, verbally abused a police officer and bit another officer trying to restrain him. His wife claimed he was possessed at the time and that she got video evidence of the demon. No word on if that video was used in court. In 2002, a man and woman in Germany said they were not responsible for stabbing a friend 66 times because the devil had commanded them to, quote, kill, sacrifice, bring souls. They'd chosen that particular friend to sacrifice because he was so funny and would be a perfect court jester for Satan. Even if that defense weren't as flimsy as tissue, they also had a habit of coming to court dressed bizarrely, making the horns hand gesture and threatening the witnesses. Both were sent to secure psychiatric facilities. In 2008, an Uber driver in Michigan was found guilty of a spree of shootings that killed six and wounded two. He continued picking up fares between shootings. The motive behind his crimes? His Uber app was possessed. He told police he recognized the Uber symbol as being that of the Eastern Star, and a devil head popped up on his screen. When he logged onto the app, it started making him be like a puppet. The devil head would give you an assignment, and it would literally take over your whole body. The app devil also told him to put on a bulletproof vest before he started shooting random people, though it did not tell him to engage in a gunfight with the police when they finally came to apprehend him. 
His shot at an insanity defense fell apart when he was cleared by psychiatrists, leading him to plead guilty. A 65-year-old man in Wolverhampton, England, narrowly escaped death when he caught a 17-year-old trying to steal his car and found himself on the receiving end of a vicious stabbing. His attacker went on trial for attempted murder, but told the court he was not responsible for his actions as he was possessed by a demon at the time. The court didn't buy the possession story, but they did take into account the fact that the 17-year-old had previously been diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic. He was convicted of grievous bodily harm and burglary rather than attempted murder, and sent to a secure mental hospital for an indefinite length of time. Another brutal stabbing blamed on demonic possession, this time in New York, was a 31-year-old man who stabbed a 28-year-old woman over 80 times. He probably didn't help his case by trying to add a mitigating factor of that he had trust issues. He received a 20-year sentence. Then there are the cases where it is the victim rather than the perpetrator that's thought to be possessed. It's often children in these cases, but don't worry, we're just glossing over the broad details. In 2012, an Illinois woman murdered her son and a friend's daughter, as well as the dogs belonging to both families, because she believed the children were possessed. Her defense team tried for an insanity plea, but the woman had had the presence of mind to initially tell police that someone broke in and murdered the children, and she was convicted of murder and animal cruelty. An Oklahoma woman choked her adult daughter with a crucifix and beat her severely in what seemed to be a sort of DIY exorcism. She admitted she tried to pretend she had memory problems in order to be found incompetent for trial, but was sentenced to life without parole for first-degree murder. Sometimes demons possess multiple people at once. Or do they? To give us alternate theories on the most famous devil-oriented trial of all time, please welcome back Kate from the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast, who hails from a little town you may have heard of, Salem, Massachusetts. Right now, it's October, and so everybody thinks about crisp nights and kids dressed up in costume and trick-or-treat. And they look at me and they say, oh, but I would love to come to Salem for Halloween. And I try to find ways of politely saying, are you high? Are you stupid? Don't do that. Because I know that for some people like this really is the dream. And I don't want to ruin anyone's dream. But seriously, don't come to Salem in October. I, you know, I mean, everybody complains this way when they live in a tourist town and the tourists show up. But seriously, visit me in September, visit me in May, any other time of the year, and I can take you on a tour to see all of the cool stuff that's always here. Hit me up. Part of the reason that those of us who live in Salem get annoyed as well is that, you know, the whole witch hysteria thing, blah, blah didn't happen here. It didn't happen in Salem, Massachusetts. It happened in Salem Village, Massachusetts. There was Salem Village and Salem Town. Now, Salem Town is where the jail was and still is. Now it's an 80s arcade game bar, really. It's also where 
what Gallows Hill is, although they only confirmed that that's actually where the hangings occurred in 2015. Salem Village is where all the key players lived, including Samuel Parris, who was the main minister whose family started the accusations. The main judges lived there. That's where the court sat. This is all in the spring of 1692. There were two little girls, Betty Parris and Abigail Williams. They were nine and 11, and they started to have convulsions, twitching, uh, vomiting, sort of general malaise. Then they started saying that they were seeing things, mostly like it sounds to me like flashes of colors and lights or darkness would come over their vision. A lot of things which, as a sufferer of epilepsy, I've always wondered, maybe instead of being the the targets of witchcraft, being influenced by the devil, maybe these girls, who were first cousins, had a genetic predisposition to epilepsy. Could be, right? Another possibility that I always thought of was that, and this isn't my theory, by the way, there's something called ergot. It's a fungus that grows on specific kind of grain called rye, and rye was used in a lot of the breads at that time. Ergot has a lot of chemical similarity to LSD and some other psychogenic drugs. And so if ergot has gone through just a little bit of mutation and then gets consumed, it creates delusions, vomiting, spasms, you know, similar sorts of symptoms within the people that consume it, especially the young and the elderly and those who are already unwell. Same as anything else, those with compromised immune systems in one way or another are going to be more vulnerable to the effects. Ultimately, over 200 people in the greater Boston, northern Massachusetts area were accused of witchcraft, with the highest concentration being in Salem Village. Of those, 19 were found guilty and were hanged, 14 women and 5 men. One other man was pressed to death because he refused to enter a plea of guilty or not guilty. Seven or eight more are known to have died in jail awaiting trial, but the numbers are far greater of people who died due to the conditions of the jail, but they just died right after being released, or due to losing all of their earthly possessions because they had to pay both for their trial and for the cost of their own imprisonment. And just overall, the costs of the Salem witch hysteria were so big that I struggle with attributing it all to one demon, or even a handful, because in my mind, it's humans who are most often the cruelest to other humans, and I think the underlying cause was probably medical but we'll probably never be able to fully diagnose exactly what that was because the social tendency for women to have to overemphasize their medical symptoms in order to get attention, that's not new in the 2000s. That was absolutely the case in the late 1600s in Massachusetts. So many of those afflicted with symptoms were women and the people they interacted with 
were other women. And so that's sort of where the, the female-centric feel of the Salem witch trials comes from. Within a year, it had all died down and gone away. Not too much longer after that, the town of Salem Village, where it all went down, kind of looked around and went, <laughs> what did we just do? And their main reaction was to change the name of their town so that nobody knew what happened there. So that's Danvers. And over time, we dropped the town from Salem Town. And so now we get all of the tourists and all of the traffic. Thanks, Kate. The man who was pressed to death in an attempt to force a plea was pretty badass. His name was Giles Corey, and he said only two words during the hours and hours that rocks were being piled on top of him. More weight. You know who else is badass? The folks who boost the signal on our social media, like Augie Peterson, Eric Parfait, Richard Enriquez, and the Turn of Phrases podcast, to name just a few. Remember, sharing your favorite podcast is still the fastest, easiest, most effective way to help it grow. Today's episode was brought to you by our amazing supporters at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, like Adam Baum, Baron, Dan, James, Robin, and Pam. As soon as I've finished editing this episode, I'll be recording the next episode of Spot the Lie, the Patreon-exclusive podcast where you can see if I'm as good at making up true-sounding facts as I am knowing obscure knowledge. We've sadly lost host Eric Montgomery to, you know, life, which is usually the biggest problem people have when podcasting, but the next episode will feature Megan from Oh No Lit Class, which is a great show if you've never listened to it. Technically speaking, it's still a great show, even if you have. Believe it or not, even in this secular technological age, exorcisms are on the rise. The Roman Catholic Church in the United States reported last year that it was seeing a rise in the overall number of exorcisms performed throughout the country. The Archdiocese of Indianapolis alone received 1,700 requests for exorcisms in 2018. While rituals to remove harmful entities from people exist in every religion in the world, when people refer to exorcism, they usually mean the Catholic rite of exorcism. You may think of exorcism as being an integral part of Catholicism for centuries, but you'd be wrong. Originally a tool that could be used by both priest and lay people alike, the exorcisms decreased in commonality with each passing decade and century. Priests were counseled not to use it unless all other methods of helping the afflicted person had been exhausted. Even in the 1990s, the Vatican guidelines stated, The person who claims to be possessed must be evaluated by doctors to rule out mental or physical illness. Just as movies featuring a dog cause a spike in breeding of that kind of dog, it was the film The Exorcist that had Catholics and non-Catholics alike seeking to have their demons cast out. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet 
for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, part of the Area of Media Network, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir to zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The movie came out about a decade after Vatican II the 21st Ecumenical Council of the Roman Catholic Church that made sweeping changes to modernize the church. Nuns no longer had to live in cloisters and could learn to drive cars. Catholics could now be cremated without infringing on their chance of being raptured. Masses would be conducted in the language of the congregates rather than in Latin, which almost no one understood. Many inside the church saw these changes as dangerous, that they would open up the church and its people to evil. How could things be as safe and sacred as they had been before if now people could just casually talk to God in their everyday language? There was also the sexual revolution and the civil rights revolution going on to make people feel like the narrowly defined, rose-colored world they knew was going away. The early 1970s was also a turning point in mental health treatment, and not always onto the right path, with false reports of multiple personality disorder and repressed and recovered memories. The fuse was primed, and the exorcist was the spark. The priests who consulted on the exorcist and the book it was based on found themselves inundated with requests for exorcisms. People from all faiths and walks of life wanted demons driven out of themselves or a loved one. It's worth mentioning that a person saying they are possessed is usually a key indicator that they're not. Those people were pretty disappointed, as the consultant priests had never performed exorcisms, because exorcisms were so rare, and the priests steered them toward more conventional, more appropriate therapies. Other priests, however, were not so reserved, and exorcisms were back on the menu, not only with Catholics, but also with Protestant denominations. In 1974, a year after The Exorcist came out, an exorcism was conducted in West Yorkshire, England. 
The possessed subject was one Michael Taylor, a 31-year-old married father of five, who was struggling with depression after an injury made it hard for him to work. His life seemed to turn around when his family joined a local church group, the Christian Fellowship Group, and the previously not particularly religious Taylor began attending services regularly. Part of that might have been the group's preacher, a 21-year-old woman named Marie Robinson. Rumors began to swirl that the two were having an affair. All the while, Taylor's attitude was becoming increasingly dark. Things came to a head when Taylor and Robinson were found naked together, which Taylor blamed on an evil spirit in his body. A local Anglican vicar was called in to perform an exorcism. The procedure lasted all night, during which the vicar and other ministers claimed to have driven 40 demons out of Taylor, including the demons of bestiality, incest, lewdness, and blasphemy. But the exhausted ecclesiastics clocked out, even though they still believed Taylor had three demons left, the demons of murder, violence, and insanity. I might have started with those ones and then gotten around to expelling the demon of bestiality later, but that's me. A few hours after they left, Taylor was found naked in the street, covered in blood, which he claimed was the blood of Satan himself. The blood was actually Taylor's wife Christine's. Her badly mutilated body was discovered in their home. A rare entry for this list, Taylor was ultimately found not guilty by reason of insanity, but did spend four years in secured mental facilities. Exorcism played a key role in a case that became known as the Demon Murder Case, or the Devil Made Me Do It case. It was the first case, or at least the first major case, in the U.S. to be blamed on demonic possession. It was a media sensation and even involved Ed and Lorraine Warren, the couple who the Conjuring movie series is based on. Harken your mind back to a time just before the satanic panic of the 1980s, in a Connecticut town so quiet it hadn't had a single murder in its 193 years of existence. The murder in question took place in 1981, when 19-year-old Arne Johnson stabbed his landlord Alan Bono with a pocket knife, fatally wounding him. But the build-up to that moment began the previous year, with an 11-year-old boy named David. David was having recurring nightmares about a man with big black eyes, a thin face with animal features, jagged teeth, pointed ears, horns, and hooves. David called this man the Beast Man. The Beast Man warned David to beware. David's parents were understandably concerned. He didn't watch horror movies, and he wasn't prone to wild imagination. And he was becoming increasingly nervous and withdrawn. David's older sister, Debbie, asked her fiancé, Arne, to stay with the family and help in any way that he could. The situation went from upsetting to frightening, as scratches and bruises began appearing on David's body without apparent cause. There were noises in the house that no one could explain. Now David was seeing the beast man even when he was awake, this time in the form of an old bearded man in faded clothes. The family turned to their church for help. A priest blessed their house, 
but the noises only got louder and the visions more menacing in response. What's worse, David began hissing at people and quoting from Milton's Paradise Lost, which he certainly had never read. The family had to watch over David in shifts all night. At least once an hour, he would wake up screaming or have a seizure. It was the family's priest who contacted the Warrens. The demonologists came to interview David. Lorraine later told People magazine, While Ed interviewed the boy, I saw a black, misty form next to him, which told me we were dealing with something of a negative nature. Soon the child was complaining that invisible hands were choking him, and there were red marks on him. He said he had the feeling of being hit. According to the Warrens, they, along with four priests, performed three exorcisms to free David from the hold of not two, but forty-three demons. According to the Diocese of Bridgeport, they investigated the case, but that's all they would say. During one of the exorcisms, Arne taunted the demons within David, beating them by saying they were too cowardly to take on a grown man like him. He basically called them chicken. By that fall, things were looking up. David was checked out by a psychiatrist and his family doctor and declared to be okay, though he had a slight learning disability and still had some trouble sleeping. Debbie and Arne moved into their own apartment, rented by Alan Bono. David had returned to normal, but Arne had changed. He'd been a fine young man by all accounts, leaving school to work full-time to help his mother support his family. Now Arne was seeing the Beast Man and going into trances where he would growl, and of which he would have no memory when it was over. He also started to run afoul of the law. Minor things at first. Then came February 16, 1981. Debbie and Arne's sister Wanda were at their job at a kennel. Arne called out of work and joined them, as did Debbie's cousin Mary, who had the day off school. Alan Bono showed up and took them all out to lunch at a local bar. Bono was doing some serious day drinking, as was Arne, according to some reports. Things were tense when the quintet returned to the kennel. Bono and Arne began arguing, and Arne began to hiss and growl. Debbie tried to get Wanda and Mary out of harm's way, but Bono allegedly grabbed Mary and refused to let go. Arne then pulled out his pocket knife, stabbed Bono in the stomach, and cut upwards to his chest. Arne stabbed Bono a few more times before fleeing the scene. It was Arne's lawyer, Martin Manella, who came up with the idea of pleading not guilty by virtue of possession, believing, or at least claiming, that the demon who had infected David was now possessing Arne. Manila had found two cases in England where demonic possession were used as the plea, though neither case had ever made it to trial. The judge was thoroughly unimpressed with this supposed precedent and refused to accept the plea. Manila then shifted to Plan B, self-defense. It was the jury's turn to be unimpressed, and they found Arne Johnson guilty of first-degree manslaughter, giving him a 10-20 to 20 year sentence though he only served five for being an exemplary inmate. The trial was a sensation, leading to a made-for-TV movie called The Demon Murder Case 
starring Kevin Bacon, Andy Griffith, and Cloris Leachman. Yes, it appears to be on YouTube in its entirety. Have fun. The case also spawned a book, The Devil in Connecticut, which was reprinted in 2006. The earth had cooled significantly in the intervening 25 years, and the family sued the publisher and the author, Gerald Brittle, saying that it violated their right to privacy, was libelous, and intentionally caused emotional distress. David claimed that the possession story was a hoax, fabricated by the Warrens so they could exploit his struggle with mental illness. Lorraine Warren and Gerald Brittle both deny David's claims. The lawsuit was settled out of court February 16, 2012, 31 years to the day of the death of Alan Bono. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today, though we'll finish the story of what was called the Dunwoody Daycare Murder. Hemi Newman, who was found guilty but mentally ill of the 2010 murder of Russell Snyderman, saw his conviction overturned in 2016. The state Supreme Court ruled that while the evidence was sufficient to enable a rational trier of fact to conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that Newman was guilty of the crimes of which he was convicted, it must reverse the conviction because the trial judge allowed in, as evidence, notes and records of two mental health experts who examined Newman before the trial, even though those were privileged. We conclude that the trial court erred in disclosing to the state Dr. Dorney and Dr. Thomas's notes and records concerning Newman. This evidence was not harmless, and therefore we must reverse Newman's conviction, wrote Justice Carol Hunstein. For those worried about a killer walking the streets, Newman was retried and found guilty again and sentenced to life in prison without parole. Remember, you can always find the script for the episode and all of the source notes at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And if you're listening to this the week it came out, happy Halloween. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.